Biological Psychology. Welcome to my podcast. Whether you like it or not, I will be talking about biological psychology because I have a test on Tuesday. And if you're listening to this, you probably also have a test on Tuesday, so suck it up. We're starting off with the central nervous system. But first, let's talk about the structure of the nervous system. So the nervous system is divided into two parts. We have the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system is made up of the spinal cord and the brain, and the peripheral nervous system is subdivided into the somatic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system, which is then further subdivided into the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Okay, so the central nervous system. Let's start off with the brain. The brain rips, so receives, processes and integrates information from the rest of the body and generates a response to it. The spinal cord connects the brain to the rest of the body via its connection to the peripheral nervous system. It's made up of grey and white matter. Grey matter is made up of cell bodies, their axons and dendrites. White matter is made up of myelin-coated axons. They are involved in the transmission of information up and down the spine. The spinal cord is protected by the vertebra, which forms a spinal column. These spinal nerves carry the messages to and from the spine. Ooh. These messages carry the message. <laughs> These nerves carry the messages to and from the spinal cord, connecting the brain and the peripheral nervous system. Okay, the peripheral nervous system. On the edge, the nerves outside the brain and spinal cord. It has two functions. One, communicate information to the organs, glands, and muscles, or for the acronym OMG. <laughs> communicates information from the organs, glands and muscles to the central nervous system from both the outside world and the inside world. Two, to communicate information to the central nervous system. Two, to communicate information from the central nervous system to the body's organs, glands and muscles via neurons. Sensory neurons transmit information towards the brain. Motor neurons transmit information away from the brain. We can remember their proper names through the acronym SAME. Is it an acronym or is it a mnemonic? Because either way, it's called SAME. Sensory equals afferent. Motor equals efferent. Remember that. But you don't have to use that in the test. Just an FYI. Just use sensory and motor. But like I thought you just should know that sensory equals afferent and motor equals efferent. The PNS is subdivided subdivided the pns is two has what the hell the pns has two subdivisions the somatic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system somatic equals skeletal so you can also call your somatic nervous system your skeletal nervous system and i'm sure miss haynes or whoever's marking the test will understand hopefully it controls the skeletal muscles attached to the bones enabling voluntary movement underlying voluntary Except for when a spinal reflex arc occurs, which we don't have to know exactly what that is, but I feel like we do anyways. It receives information from sites around the body, including skin and muscles. This sensory information is carried to the central nervous system via sensory neurons. Motor information is carried from the central nervous system via motor neurons. Autonomic nervous system, or the ANS. It's a division of the peripheral nervous system that controls the activity of our internal organs and glands, for example our heart, pupils and adrenal glands. It contains neurons that transmit motor messages from the brain to the body's involuntary muscles or smooth muscles 
that control the activity of these internal organs and glands. It also transmits messages back to the brain via sensory neurons about the level of activity in these organs and glands. Autonomic is self-regulating. It functions automatically. Activities carried by the autonomic nervous system are involuntary and operate continuously and independently of the brain so we can pay attention to other matters such as survival needs or threats. Sympathetic, sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight. It's a branch of the autonomic nervous system that dominates when we experience heightened emotions or during times of vigorous activity, meaning that mine is always dominant. It uses body's internal, the body's internal resources for extra energy that is desired for increased physical activity or to deal with these intense emotions. It's similar to pressing the accelerator. It pumps more petrol into the engine to go faster. Whether or not that is actually correct, I don't know. I am not a mechanic. Parasympathetic nervous system. Rest and digest. It's the opposite of the sympathetic nervous system. It maintains a level of homeostasis. It keeps our internal systems in a balanced and healthy state by maintaining heart rate, breathing rate, and blood pressure. Accompanied by a normal level of arousal, it's a psychological state that we mostly experience. Both the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system are automatic. You do not voluntarily control them, although I would like to. Both sympathetic, ooh, both systems are always active. However, one usually dominates at a particular time. You can either be relaxed or aroused at different times of the day. Alright. Location, structure, and function of the brain. It has an imp- the brain has an important role of communicating information to the rest of the body. It receives and interprets information received from the body's sensory systems. It then forms a response and sends motor messages out to all parts of the body so it can be coordinated and appropriate responses can be made. It's responsible for coordinating all activities within the nervous system. Hindbrain, in brackets, brainstem. It's the base of the brain near the skull. It's important for movement and balance. Hindbrain consists of the primitive parts of the brain, the pons, medulla, and cerebellum. Medulla, the continuation of the spine controls breathing, heart rate, and forebrain. Cerebellum, it's walnut-shaped and receives information from the pons. Coordinates sequence of body movement. If you're wondering what the pons is, I have no idea because we don't have to learn it. Midbrain, between the hindbrain and forebrain. Responsible for regulation of sleep, motor movement, and arousal. It includes the reticular information, network of neurons from the hindbrain to the forebrain. Speaking of forebrain, the forebrain. It's above the midbrain, towards the top of the brain. It's the largest, most complex, and highly developed region of the brain. It controls cognitive, cognitive functions and processes such as emotions, motivations, sensations, perceptions, learning, memory, and reasoning. It consists of the hypothalamus and thalamus, and probably other regions that we don't need to know. Hypothalamus, a small structure that controls basic survival actions, for example, sleep, body temperature, regulation, and expression of emotions. Remember these four Fs, feeding, fighting, fleeing, fornication, (laughs) fornication, (laughs) thalamus, 
It's located within the cerebral hemispheres. It's the communication center of the brain. Receives information from the ears, eyes, and skin, but not the nose. Why? I have no idea. Enables us to process sensory stimuli in the environment and determines which sensory information we should pay attention to. The cerebral cortex. It's subdivided into lobes. Frontal lobes. Associated with higher mental ability and controls movement. If they are damaged, a person's personality may change drastically and they may not be able to problem solve or reason. Temporal lobes, located on either side of the cortex. They are associated with speech and hearing. Damage affects the person's language ability. Occipital lobes, at the back of the brain, responsible for vision. Damage to area affects vision. We can remember this by teachers have eyes on the back of their head because they can see things and they're not even looking at you. So, occipital lobes at the back of the head, teachers' eyes at the back of their head. Parietal lobes on the top of the cortex, responsible for body sensations. For example, temperature and touch. Damage to this area leads to reduction in body feelings. Split brain studies. The corpus callosum is cut to stop brain activity associated with seizures from separating one hemisphere to the other. Corpus callosum, a thick band of neural fibers that connect the hemispheres. Surgery can reduce severe epileptic seizures. The unique function of the hemisphere of each hemisphere was revealed when patients under laboratory conditions had images flashed to either the right or left side of the brain while they looked at a dot in the middle of the screen. Severing of the corpus callosum allowed Sperry and Gazangia, I don't know how to pronounce his name but he'll be relevant later so he's not relevant now, to find that the left hemisphere of the brain is dominant for verbal tasks, left verbal tasks, and right is dominant for non-verbal tasks, right non-verbal we know that the left is dominant for verbal tasks because both our Broca's area and Wernicke's area are located on the left hemisphere of the brain. Speaking of Broca's and Wernicke's area, Broca's area. Pierre Paul Broca, a young surgeon working in a hospital in Paris, pinpointed a specific location in the brain being responsible for the function of speech. A person with Broca's aphasia which is a result of a stroke, has difficulty expressing messages in words or sentences, but can fully comprehend speech. Typically, words are slow. It's a huge effort to try and think of words in short sentences. Damage has occurred to the left frontal lobe, left frontal lobe near the motor cortex. Wernicke's area. I always laugh because this sounds like a Wernicke's. Karl Wernicke, a German physician, discovered a different area of the brain that caused language impairment. Wernicke's aphasia from damage to Wernicke's area located in the left temporal lobe near the parietal lobe. Difficulty understanding written and spoken language that makes sense to others. Speech is fluent but does not make sense. They talk freely and rapidly with pitch and tone but it's utter gibberish. Alright, prefrontal cortex, the region of the brain being implicated 
in many functions such as planning, decision-making, short-term memory, personality, expression, etc. Primary motor cortex. The role to generate neural impulses that control the execution of movement. Motor movement. Primary auditory cortex. It's an area which receives sound and is responsible for the ability to hear. Primary visual cortex. Role to receive, process and integrate. There it is, rip. Receive, process and integrate visual information. The processed information from the visual cortex is subsequently sent to other regions of the brain to be analysed and utilised. Neurons. The structure of neurons and how their structure influences their function. So, the parts of the neurons, because I cannot describe what it looks like. Soma. Cell body that contains a nucleus. It is the largest part of a neuron and controls metabolism and maintenance of a cell. Dendrites. Responsible for first receiving the message from other neurons and transmitting the message to the soma. Axon. Thin fibres that carry the messages in the form of an electrical impulse away from the cell body. This information is carried as an electrical impulse known as action potential. The end of the axon has terminal buttons that secrete neurotransmitters. Myelin sheath. Some axons are coated in which is an insulated fatty layer that protects the axon and speeds up inf transmission of information or action potential. Types of neurons. Neurons operate as part of the somatic nervous system. Motor neurons can communicate messages from the central nervous system to particular muscles that an organism tends to move, also known as efferent neurons. Sensory neurons. Neurons that carry sensory stimuli from the outside world into the central nervous system, also known as efferent neurons. There's our same acronym or mnemonic acronym, I don't know, again. Types of neurons, interneurons. Oh well, we already did. We already did motor and sensory neurons. So interneurons. They carry information between the motor and sensory neurons in the CNS. Motor and sensory neurons do not touch. They always go through interneurons. Interneurons also just don't have a myelin sheath from the diagram that I'm looking at. But I don't. I don't know if that's relevant. It's important in transmit transmitting impulses between other neurons as part of the reflex arc. Process of neurotransmission. This has a butthole next to it. If you're not in Miss Haynes' class and I'm sending this to you, um, if it has a butthole next to it, it's if you have a butthole, you should be able to remember this. You need to remember this. This is important. Anyways. 1. The dendrite receives a message and transmits this message down the axon via action potential, which is an electrical impulse. 2. This stimulates the release of neurotransmitters from the axon terminal into the synaptic gap. Synaptic gap. Synaptic gap. Either way, you should know how to spell it so you would understand what I'm saying. 3. The neurotransmitters cross the synaptic gap and are absorbed by the receptor sites on the dendrite on the postsynaptic neuron, the receiving neuron. 4. 
This triggers a new action potential in this neuron and the process begins again. 5. Any excess neurotransmitters left in the synaptic gap are reabsorbed by the presynaptic neuron, the sending neuron, through a process called reuptake, for example, runner's high. Information from one neuron flows to other neurons across this... Ooh, let's start that again. Information from one neuron flows to another neuron across a small gap called a synapse. At the synapse, electrical signals are translated into chemical signals in order to cross the gap. They are not crossed as an electrical symbol, signal. You have to remember that. They turn into chemical signals. How? Don't ask. Um, you can also remember this by uh, the key and locks, I think I remember. The only certain neurotransmitters can fit into something. I don't know. Ignore that. Anyways. Um... Once on the other side, the signal becomes electrical again. So it goes from electrical across the synaptic gap as a chemical signal and then back into an electrical signal to pass through the other neuron. Uh, that is all I have for biological psychology. I will be back for ethics, which is boring. So you're probably listening to this as you go to bed. I am back and you are probably sick of my voice by now but you're probably going to listen to it for another 20 minutes or however long this thing takes because there's a lot of words and I can't speak very well. Alright, ethical guidelines and practices for psychological research. Ethics, the moral principles and codes of behaviour that apply to all psychologists regardless of the fields in which they work in. The ethics committee, 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 and researcher must investigate the potential benefits of research to society, which need to be weighed against the potential risks or discomfort to participants. This ethical consideration is known as benefiance. Benefits? Bene you should know how to spell it, so it's benefiance to me now. Bene that doesn't sound right. Oh, anyways, um, where research is considered through the scope of maximising the benefits to society while minimising harm to others. Where potential harm may be involved, either physically or psychologically, it is important to consider a non-malefiance. Malefiance? What is with these words? In the medical profession, the principle of non-malefiance, you should know how to spell it, so I'm just saying it like this, involves avoiding causing any kind of harm at all. If potential harm slash discomfort is involved, the harm slash discomfort does not outweigh the potential benefits that could eventuate. Important that the researcher shows respect for all involved. Respect in research is known through the consideration is shown. It's, it's not known, it's shown, but you should know it, so it's now known. Why am I so funny? Jesus Christ. Respect. Res yeah, respect. Respect in research is shown through the consideration of in of in. Uh, should I start that sentence again? I think I should. So you should know it now because it's my third time saying it. Respect in research. That's alliteration. Why am I being? Why is there alliteration in my notes? Because you know what? That's how you're gonna remember it now. Respect in research. Why would you need to remember that? You should know what respect is. Respect. Res respect in research is shown through the consideration of an individual's welfare, but also through the appreciation of their own uniqueness, anatomy, 
and freedom of expression. Justice ensures fair treatment for all, from selection through to result collection. Integrity involves the researcher's commitment to the honest conducting and reporting of research. Integrity also relies upon scrutiny of the research and of its procedures so that the knowledge and understanding gained through research can be trusted in its broader application. I wrote this in brackets, so I'm going to have to turn my page around. Prior to conducting or commencing of any research, the research must submit a research plan to an ethics committee which is made up of academics and professionals with understanding of individuals' well-being and health. Alright. Ethical guidelines. Participants' rights. Know your rights. Just know your rights. If you're going into a psychological experiment, know your rights. They'll tell you anyways, but you should know your rights. 1. Voluntary participation ensures that a participant willingly decides to take part in an experiment. Participants must not experience any pressure or coercion to participate, nor be threatened with any negative consequences if they decide not to participate in an experiment. 2. Informed consent. The researcher must obtain written permission from each participant in the study, stating that they consent to participating in a study and they have been given all necessary information. The consent must inform participants of their rights as well as any possible physical or psychological harm that may be encountered. Informed consent. Part 2. If a participant is, is under 18 or legally unable to give consent, the participant's parent or guardian should complete the consent for the person. I don't know why I didn't write the person on, on, after that. Irrelevant. Withdrawal rights. If a person feels uncomfortable during any follow-up activities that they are involved in or wishes to remove their results from being used in the study, withdrawal rights ensure that they can do this without consequence. Confidentiality. Confidentiality participants... What? Confidentiality participants' right to privacy with... Oh... Oh, okay. This is, we're starting a new topic. This is confidentiality. Participants' right to privacy with a regard to access, storage, and disposable, disposable? disposal of information. Well, then the information would be disposable, so technically I was right. Collect oh, I'm going to start that sentence again because I keep talking over it. Confidentiality. Participants' right to privacy with regard to access, storage, and disposal of information collected about them that's related to research. Participants' involvement in and results from an experiment cannot be disclosed to anyone unless written consent has been obtained. Deception. In research, it should not occur unless it's necessary. Full stop. It, just, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't occur unless it's necessary. It is used in some cases where when when or where where giving participants information about an experiment may influence their behavior during the study and thus affect the accuracy of results however deception and research must be used with caution and when used researchers must ensure that all participants are thoroughly debriefed debriefing involves participants being informed of the study's true purpose once the experiment has ended during debriefing a researcher must 
also correct any mistakes, attitudes or beliefs held by the participants and explain all deception relating to the experiment. The experimenter must also provide an opportunity for the participants to gain access to information about the study. It includes the procedures, results and conclusions and provide access to additional support through counselling as required. Animals in Research There's three R's, Replacement, Reduction and Refinement. Replacement Methods that permit a given purpose of an activity or project to be achieved without the use of animals. Don't use animals. It's like using animals for your soap company or something. Have you seen have you seen that little like TikTok that is about this rabbit and the rabbit's like missing an eye and he's missing patches of his hair and it's really sad because it talks about him being like a lab rat pretty much. But he's not really a lab rat, he's a lab rabbit. Don't use animals. Come on guys. It's twenty twenty three, wake up. Animals are not relevant. Well, they are relevant, which is why we're not using them. But, like, using them in research isn't relevant. Like, don't do it. Wait, that doesn't mean that it's not relevant. Don't use animals. Just don't. Reduction. If the use of animals is the only way to obtain the necessary information, they have the responsibility to ensure studies are of highest quality, designed to, to involve the smallest number of animals necessary to achieve the study's aim and satisfies good statistical design. So if you're using animals, you better treat them like gold. Like you better bathe these animals and feed them like five-star food. Um, but also a very small amount of animals. So you're feeding these animals five-star food, but like there's not that many. So you don't have to feed all of them five-star food, if you get what I mean. Like if you had a group of 100 cows, just use two. That's probably not a good number. If you have a group of 100 cows, just use 10. 10%. Feed that 10% five-star food. Yeah. Refinement. Methods that alleviate or minimise potential pain and distress and enhance animal well-being. The five-star food. Maybe just putting them in their own environment. Just don't use animals. Come on. Replacement. Use something else. Use something that doesn't moo or oink. It's 2023. Come on. Anyways. Formulating research. Aim. What is an aim? A statement that explains what you intend to investigate. For example, you may aim to investigate the effects of media on body image. Spoiler alert, it has a heavy impact on body image. Steps in research. We can remember this by I found dad catching air. Why was he catching air? You could find out. That could be your aim. Why do dads catch air? Or maybe, what causes dads to catch air? That's probably not an aim. That's just a question. Anyways, one, identify the research problem. Two, formulate a hypothesis. Three, design a method. Four, collect data. Five, analyze data. Six, interpret a result. Controlled experiment. Investigates a cause and effect relationship between two or more variables. That whether a oh, that whether a change in one thing has an impact on another. Independent variable. Condition that an experiment systematically manipulates changes or varies in order to gauge its effect on another variable. Dependent variable. Is measured 
In an experiment, dependent variables measured the effects that the manipulation of the independent variable had on behaviour. Control variable. Any variable that's constant in research conditions. Extraneous variable. Any variable that you're not investigating that can potentially affect the outcomes of your research study. Hypothesis. We can remember this by PIPDC. That's an acronym. Or is it a mnemonic? I don't know the difference. Um, it doesn't matter. PIPDC. P-I-P-D-C. So hypothesis is a statement or testable prediction about the likely outcome of an experiment. It makes a prediction about the direction of interaction between the independent variable, whether it increases, decreases, or stays the same. It also includes the population from which the, which the sample is drawn. Always include your population in your hypothesis. When starting a hypothesis, in psychology, always write, it is hypothesized always. An example of a hypothesis that I have copied from the research methods textbook. Textbook? Research methods book? It's a book and it's called research methods that we use in class. So it is hypothesized that adolescent males who sleep less than six hours a night will be more likely to have their lower memory scores than those who sleep for more than six hours a night. It is hypothesized. Always start with this. Adolescent males is the population. The independent variable is the amount of hours that they sleep a night, whether it's six or if it's more than six. The prediction is more likely, so it's, they're more likely to have lower memory scores. The dependent variable is what they score. So, like, they just have lower memory scores. It's like, and, But if it says how they're recording it, then I would also include how you recorded it. So, like, if you're doing a test, it's, like, the score that they get on the test of whatever the test was. Wait, that could apply to this. You get my you get my example, though. You, like, you feel me? Like, do you get it? And then we're back to the independent variable when it's more than six hours a night. So the independent variable is whether they sleep less than six hours a night or more than six hours a night. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much ethics and animals in research and formulating your research. You are probably sick of my voice right now. Don't worry, so am I, and I've had this for 15 years and 9 months. So enjoy, that's the content that we need to know for our topic 1 test. You could also do this for your exams, and if you don't like hearing my voice... Make your own podcast. I don't care. Okay. Love you. Bye.